biggest fears that I hear both in my work in counseling and as a pastor and as a Buddhist teacher. And these are the fears of rejection, loneliness, and death. The fear of rejection and abandonment is kind of clear given that our species survives and relies on attachments and social connections. We're a social species and the way we thrived and evolved and became such a uh, successful species, not in terms of uh, the earth, but just as a thriving species is because we affiliate so well. Uh, we have high levels of oxytocin. We have massive forebrains that inhibit midbrain fight-flight uh, impulses. So we can interact with people and we can form attachments and we can form meaningful bonds. And as a result of how dependent we are on social connections and attachments as, a, as our means to survival, uh, we developed regions of our brain that are massively influential in the secretion of neuromodulators and also uh, that reward us or penalize us depending upon how robust our social bonds are. For instance, regions like the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex and so on and so forth. When human beings are socially abandoned, rejected by others, it can activate fear centers of the brain, of course, the amygdala and the PAG, that make it as terrifying as any experience we can endure. Attachment wounds are or abandonments or or social rejections are, you know, of course, endemic in anxiety disorders, cluster B disorders, substance abuse and addict uh, reliance on substances and so forth. So I think it's pretty clear just how painful social uh, rejection can be. And there are in certain age groups, epidemic of suicide and suicidal ideations when people feel socially humiliated, especially in teenage groups. The fear of loneliness can seem like it's very much the same to a degree as the fear of abandonment or rejection, but we can have robust attachments and connections and still fear experiences of social or emotional isolation. The brain needs the experience of being seen in the eye of the other uh, to establish what's called limbic co-regulation. We keep ourselves in a healthy state of the nervous system the more we feel that our affects, which display our internal experience to others, when we feel our emotions are seen by others and mirrored by others, that's what regulates our autonomic nervous system. That's what kept us safe from the moment we were born all the way through our lives, as the great Bowlby, a, a very important psychologist, noted from cradle to grave, we need to have this feeling of being seen in the eye of the other. And loneliness... Um, has devastating effects on our emotion regulation, just as rejection and social abandonment. In fact, uh, studies by Cochiopo and uh, I can't remember her name, Holt Lundsted, um, found that any period of loneliness that is regular through a five-year period is the equivalent of smoking 15 packs a day in terms of our mortality. And uh, individuals have, during the pandemic, experienced so much loneliness that from 2019, where anxiety disorders were represented in about 10% of the population, a year later, one year later, it was found to be in 30%. So it tripled in the course of one year because of the social isolation 
that we endured in the first year of the pandemic. <clears throat> so uh, I, I hope you agree with me that most people fear social isolation and loneliness, fear the experience of being rejected or abandoned by an attachment figure. And the third uh, fear, I think, is kind of the mother or father or both of all fears, the fear of death. Um, having annihilation terror provides us with actually a significant evolutionary advantage. Not just our ability to bond, but the fact that we are aware of our own mortality, our own fragility. We become more vigilant to threats and we become more um, active in trying to protect ourselves so that we'll live longer and eventually we pass on our genes. So it was to a significant advantage of, uh, of our species that we developed due, our, due to our massive forebrains that we developed this awareness that we're going to die. But of course, having a drive to survive uh, comes in conflict with that awareness that just as we want to survive, we all are aware that we are living on borrowed time. And this in and of itself can create, of course, dread, anxiety, and rumination. So on this, there was a wonderful book that was written about 50 years ago by a guy named Ernst Becker. Ernst Becker, I think it was actually. It was called uh, The no Denial of Death. And Becker proposed that our fear of death and all that it entails is so great that almost all of our behavior in life is motivated by a desire to forget that, uh, to forget that awareness, to, in essence, deny that we're going to die. Um, <clears throat> now, of course, nobody wants to think all the time about their own mortality. As we'll talk about in a while, that would not be a skillful solution to uh, how to uh, process our, the facticity of our, um, our uh, mortality. So to some degree, distractions can be skillful. Creative endeavors, crafts, helping others, uh, activities that, uh, as we see, also make us feel good about ourselves can distract us from the awareness of death and also produce uh, work and results that are quite beneficial. But many, as Becker pointed out, of the distractions we seek are actually quite unskillful. Um, maybe the most mild is the egoic immortality that some people seek by having build, building huge towers and naming it after their, themselves or hospital wings or accumulating mass of uh, property and or some kind of gesture, plaque, memorial that tries to create a sense, a representation of self that will endure once one's physical body has uh, ceased. Um, there's also spiritual denial. We soothe ourselves of the fear of death very often by spiritual practices that promise immortality and afterlife. And I would note here that that's actually not the case in the Dharma. While the Buddha did uh, teach uh, re rebirth, but when asked, the Buddha was very clear to say that our consciousness, our thoughts, our our sense, any sense of self we might have, any memories, they don't get reborn. So there's no sense of an I that I'm familiar with, even if I did believe in rebirth, that would become 
uh, passed on to another life. So the Dharma doesn't actually propose a, uh, a symbolic or spiritual denial of death. Um, and in fact, so many of the Buddhist teachings were addressed the fear of death, that it's hard to believe that uh, his practitioners needed so many talks if they, if they felt that they were going to be reborn after death. Um, perhaps the worst kinds of distractions are the addictive short-term pleasures of food, shopping, sex, TV, money, addictions to social media that we seek out as a way to distract ourselves from reflecting on, did I live the right life? How much time do I have left? You know, how do I compare to others? Uh, will I be abandoned? And so forth, so on and so forth. Will I be alone in the future? The fears of rejection, loneliness, and death are exacerbated by lived experiences. The great D.W. Winnicott, uh, one of uh, many heroes of mine, uh, noted that individuals fear most what they've already experienced in life. I've always found this to be a pretty profound thought. Uh, Winnicott proposed that we don't actually fear things we've never experienced. We only fear that which we've already endured and um, have created lasting wounds in us that are that stay active and uh, um, in regions of the brain that are largely unconscious. That would be the right amygdala and the orbital frontal region of the right hemisphere, which contain these memories of abandonments or losses or loneliness in childhood and earlier life. And then we have uh, we neurocept, we look around for these experiences to happen again. And when they do, in any remote fashion, they trigger us into panic and anxiety. But just the anticipation that once again we will experience the loneliness or the abandonments of childhood can be enough to keep us in an active, ongoing, low-level state of fear of returning to these painful states. Interestingly, one of the things I, um, I discovered in doing a lot of uh, uh, reading about this subject in the last few days, it, while very often it turns out that religious practice in and of itself that pro promotes the idea of an afterlife doesn't actually provide people with much relief at all from their fears of death and mortality, what does provide a sense of uh, protection is self-esteem. People who engage in activities that are moral, morally directed uh, report actually uh, less fear, ongoing fear, anxiety of death and loneliness and abandonment than people who don't live particularly, or don't prioritize acts of generosity and kindness. There's actually something, it turns out, called the Templar Death Anxiety Scale, who knew? Uh, actually, that was developed about 50 years ago, and that's a scale that rates how frightened people are of death. I'm glad I'm not a Templar Death Anxiety Scale clinician, because I wouldn't want to sit around asking people all day long about how terrified they are of their own uh, mortality, but somebody out there is doing it. And it turns out that in studies from the Philippines to Tibet to different regions to the U.S., to Europe, same thing. Self-esteem is a far greater protector from the fear of death and mortality than um, believing in an afterlife. So, uh, loneliness, abandonment, and death are made much more difficult to process due to, I believe, our Western culture's avoidance of these 
topics, we don't acknowledge these concerns. They're labeled very often as bleak and morbid. Nobody at a social gathering is encouraged over uh, or at a wedding, those tables of eight where you're meeting people you've never met before and somebody says, how do you know the bride or groom? And you say, how are you processing your own death? That's not the kind of conversation that most people have. So it's a it's not exactly encouraged. And in fact, these subjects are taboos, barely confronted. Uh, bodies of the dead in our culture, unlike other cultures where they're just dressed up and people see them to compensate, or in India where they still have charnel grounds where they just leave the bodies out to decompensate, or like sky burials in Mongolia and Tibet. Um, we we dress the bodies of the dead up to make them look like they're still alive. And we put them in what looks like little beds, and then they're there, and then they're not. And so the idea is to essentially remove the confrontation or the awareness of death as much as possible. And we tend to also, as a culture, avoid looking at or even culturally uh, in any way uh, talking about loneliness, even though in this country there's an epidemic of loneliness. One out of every two adults report it regularly, and 30% it's a significant issue that uh, is chronic. Um, but we don't. Uh, we don't discuss it. And unfortunately, the basal lateral amygdala of the limbic system tends to learn that the things we avoid are frightening. So if, for example, you fall off a bike and you don't get back on a bike, over time your basal lateral amygdala will assume getting on a bike is dangerous. Anything we avoid over time becomes more and more difficult. The basal lateral amygdala just simply looks for things to be frightened of. That's its very nature. And anything we avoid looking at, we will become over time more um, averse uh, to uh, processing, looking at, discussing, uh, and, and even uh, trying to work through. Uh, <clears throat> Sheldon Solomon who wrote a book, I think it was called, uh, what was it called? Oh, God. The Worm at the Core. Uh, he and Jeff Greenberg are psychologists who write about uh, and who took the work of Ernst Becker and oh, uh, added a lot more clinical research. They found that when people are forced to confront death without preparation, they become far more reactive and defensive. They grasp at their worldviews at all costs. They display very often xenophobic beliefs. And other psychologists note that when people are forced without preparation to conf or to reflect on their own death, they can erect what's called narcissistic defenses and claim more credit for their successes in an attempt to buoy them or buffer themselves from the reflection. So clearly, on the one hand, to avoid these topics and then be confronted with them leads to some very uh, unhealthy and unhappy results. Um, <clears throat> it sets us up, if we avoid the topics of loneliness and abandonment and mortality, it sets us up for um, anxiety, if not terror, whenever they're suddenly uh, presented, whenever we suddenly need to have something biopsied. Or we look in the mirror and there's a sign of aging that we haven't prepared for. It can be suddenly extremely desultory unless we've had some previous way of safely addressing and acknowledging these themes. Um, without reflecting on our fragility or lack of guarantees, um, we empty life, I firmly believe, of that which gives it meaning. 
many philosophers have noted that uh, what gives life meaning is not accumulating experiences. Because if you live forever and you could accumulate unending experiences, eventually none of them would have any meaning. What gives life meaning is knowing that an activity you've chosen is one of a limited amount you get to do in your life. That's what gives it weight. That's what gives it resonance. That's what gives it any sense of import. In Heidegger's Being in Time, which was a book I heroically attempted to read and I utterly failed. So when whenever I speak of Heidegger, I'm actually talking about secondary texts, which I instead turned to because I was no match for that particular writer but uh, or philosopher. But Heidegger noted that living towards death is the only way we can live an authentic life. It's how we make fully authentic choices. And in it, he talked about there's uh, waiting versus anticipating. Waiting is simply avoiding, not really acknowledging, just, just passing our time until death happens, which he viewed as wholly inauthentic, versus anticipating, which is living towards or acknowledging that every choice we made we make is made against a limited fabric or a limited array of choices we get to make. So um, that's it's that's what makes our choices transcend the mundane. When in acknowledging the fact that we don't have unlimited time. And in fact, in my work in palliative care and uh, in teaching uh, for hospice workers and the work I've done, these reflections have been uh, very, very important. And I'll talk about them, especially when uh, we get towards the meditation. For me, the key to addressing these topics begins with the middle path. In the Dharma, the middle path is the very one of the very foundations of the Dharma. The middle path is about not uh, indulging nor avoiding, but finding a safe way to approach what the Buddha called dukkha, or the distressing uh, suffering, the challenging experiences of life. In a way, I would compare the Dharma and its goal of creating neither an avoidance of the topic nor allowing us to steep in it, to ruminate, to become uh, flooded by fears of death, but to find a safe path that transcends those two two approaches, uh, finds a safe middle or uh, alternative as a way to process these uh, very difficult themes. I would, in many ways, compare it to how um, therapists and counselors such as myself help clients address traumas. We don't, as a therapeutic process, just avoid all the traumas an individual has experienced, nor do we simply jump in and have them recite traumas and then get flooded and re-trigger and reactivate. What we do is we develop safe tools to allow them to have a safe way to process the painful emotional events of life or the fears of the future. We do that by giving them safety orientation, like safety cues that they can orient to, titrating by slowly moving in and then uh, uh, slowly moving out, going at a slower pace uh, as we practice. We could compare that to bearing in towards a subject and then backing out 
when it starts to get too intense and reorienting to what are the safety cues in my environment or in my body. So the Dharma itself <coughs> starts uh, in the Dhammachaka Pavatna, which is the Buddha's first teaching, with a straightforward spoken reminder of these inevitable experiences in life. The Buddha says something like, here, friends, is the first great truth. Birth is distressing. Aging is distressing. Our death is distressing. Sorrow, pain, and despair are distressing. Being with the unloved is distressing. Being separated from those we love is distressing and not getting what we want is distressing. So right in there, the Buddha is saying, in life, these events happen, and that they are difficult and painful, and that <clears throat> there's no way around that. There's no way around birth, aging, death, separation from the loved. In another early sutta in the Diga Nikaya, the Buddha talks about his life before he became enlightened. And when he's talking about what led to his enlightenment, he said, while I was rich, because the Buddha was born very wealthy, and surrounded by splendid objects and beautiful people, I lived in ignorance. For though I am not immune to death, when I saw a corpse, I was terrified, and I, was, I acted as if I was oblivious to the fact that I too would die. To be so easily frightened and upset meant I was living in an undignified way. So on the one end, the Buddha says, it is inevitably painful to confront death and loneliness and separation from the loved. But at the same time, if we are completely oblivious to that, then we will uh, act in a completely undignified way. So the process that is most effective, I mean, there's many... There's a bunch of suttas. Uh, I don't have time for them uh, all. One of my favorite, the Abhaya, which is on the removal of fear, and the Buddha talks about um, how people who uh, find unconditional sources of joy spend time engaging in skillful activities and know inner peace are much less likely to uh, experience a great fear of death. And I believe those statements are true because, as we've seen, one of the great protections against fear of death clinically is acti actions that build self-esteem. And all of those the Buddha has listed build self-esteem. But for me, the most powerful tool in addressing this topic is the Maranasati, the Maranasati is the mindfulness of death teachings. There's quite a number of them. And in some suttas, the Buddha says one should reflect on this every moment or every day. I uh, Later on, practitioners ref referred to the Maranasati as the five daily reflections. So we don't do them every moment, but practitioners are encouraged to reflect on this once a day. It's very central to spiritual practice. The Maranasati is one of the ten most exalted forms of mindfulness. And it basically goes like this. Um, the Buddha says to his practitioners, there are five great facts one should reflect on daily. One, I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. Two, I'm of the nature to become sick. I have not gone beyond sickness. I'm of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond death. And then he says, I will change and I will become separated from all that is dear to me, i.e., we will experience at times loneliness and social 
disconnection. And finally, the Buddha says in the fifth daily reflection, I am the owner and heir to my actions. Whatever I do, for good or bad, the result of my acts are all that I truly own. So that's a reflection on karma. The Buddha says, ultimately, there's nothing we can lay stake to other than our actions. And once again, that's a reminder of how important it is to protect ourselves from being overwhelmed by these fears, by living a life that is in some way virtuous, in some way harmless, or most ways harmless, hopefully. These topics are not pessimistic, morbid, or needlessly distressing. Once again, if we avoid these topics when we are confronted by them, which we will be, um, we will find it far, far more distressing. We will exhibit some of our most addictive spikes, our most uncontrollable fears. But at the same time, we don't want to simply steep or ruminate unskillfully in these uh, concerns. We want to do it in a structured way. And for me, the Maranasati, the Buddha's mindfulness of death, is, I think, one of the most beautiful, structured, and safe ways to approach these topics. <clears throat> Marana Sati brings about positive uh, reflections and positive events in life. Interestingly, there was a study that showed that when people set aside time to reflect on death, that there are notable increases of kindness, optimism, gratitude, and teamwork. Um, Older people who reflect skillfully are more present time aware and more forgiving. Individuals are more likely to prioritize what are called values-guided actions, which means not making choices based on money or what other people will approve of necessarily, but making choices based on what are our highest moral beliefs, how we want to be remembered, and so forth. In a, there was a study called something like uh, being present in the face of existential threats or something like that. People who reflected on a regular basis on death were more mindful and less defensive. Um, I can say that the impact on emotional well-being of palliative care volunteers is almost uniformly positive. When I was doing my last rounds of uh, working with people with terminal cancer, this was several years ago, I worked with two people who were at the time much younger than me and both had uh, stage four liver cancer. And were uh, well, one was colon, one was liver. And they were both in their 30s. And uh, it was, of course, a very, very difficult uh, uh, <clears throat> process as being part of my pastoral work. But what I found was those days when I would go to visit and then leave, when I would walk out of either the hospital or wherever they were doing the palliative care, I had the greatest sense of ease. And all of whatever was bothering me when I would walk in was no longer there. There was nothing but this great um, gratitude for simply having life and for simply being sentient and being able to walk. And and the just the smallest things became monumental and huge. Um, every time I did it, recognizing that I live without, completely without guarantees was the single best way to remove 98% of the shit that wants my attention, that is utterly useless in terms of establishing well-being, peace of mind, or a sense of esteem or worthiness. So <clears throat> it turns out that my voice is uh, 
beginning to fade. So I think that's a good enough place to stop. And I'm going to lead us now through a meditation where we're going to start by establishing ease. And then we're going to go into the Marana Sati and the reflections on giving us a sense of um, a way to uh, reflect and live towards our mortality so that we can hopefully make better choices, more authentic choices, and appreciate, hopefully, what we really have today in all its uh, robustness. So thanks for listening, and find a really comfortable seated position. And this is some uh, throat coat, thankfully. Throat coat is a life-saving tea. And uh, so I'm going to uh, close my eyes and um, let's just try to reel in our awareness from the image of the screen that's now pretty much implanted in our mind, the room that we're sitting in, trying to wind back in our awareness into the body, moving in and going down. When we get lost in thought, our awareness tends to move up into our heads and out of our body. So the opposite is coming back home, moving in and moving down into lowering your awareness, if possible, so that the sensations of the belly and the, or the abdomen, the, the sensations of feet or hands or knees, whatever is calling our attention, our awareness can get up close to And just imagine that the world around us is slightly blurring and becoming more distant. And the internal experience, the sensations of a body breathing, the sensations of heat and cold and liquidity and tingling and tightness, muscle contraction and release. All of these internal sensations can become like a a night sky of sensations, wondrous in its richness, so try to find the most comfortable sensation in your body and use whatever that sensation is as an anchor, a place to return your awareness to. For some people it could be an area where the breath is very expressive, maybe the belly or maybe the chest, 
Sometimes I feel my eyes, when they're settled, are very comfortable, or the palms of my hands. Just find an area that feels really comfortable and see if you can use the breath to spread the sensations of ease, subsuming the body that surrounds it, trying to spread ease like you're kneading water into dough, spreading the ease through the body with each breath. If I feel the ease in my chest, I just breathe into that area. And as I breathe out, I just imagine the ease spreading ever so slightly, expanding, creating a anchor to rest my awareness If it's hard for you to work with your body, you can open your awareness to the sounds arriving, to what some people call the sense doors. Just become aware of the sounds without labeling or visualizing them, listening to your environment in a way that Maybe someone from another planet would listen to the sounds of your environment having never heard them before with a sense of wonder, interest, curiosity. So we're just going to sit now quietly for a while. And just try to do whatever practice is conducive for establishing a quality of ease and a safe anchor or resource to return to.
So at this point, if you'd like to move on to the reflections, you are invited. Or if you'd like to just stay with your practice, that's fine too. So keeping in mind a place of uh, in your body, sensations that feel like a safe anchor, place to return to, or if you want, have a visualization handy of a place where you feel really safe or a person that represents compassion, kindness, care, anything that is a a place in our meditation that we can return to whenever we like. And now you're invited to start with the first of the five contemplations. I'm of the nature to grow old. I am of the nature to grow old. I am of the nature to become sick. I'm of the nature to become sick. And you can use whatever phrases you want to just repeat in your mind. Try to keep them as simple as you can. I am of the nature to die. I too am of the nature to die. And just note what feelings or even subtle physiological events, if any, occur when we state these facts. I am of the nature to be separated from all that is dear to me. Of the nature to be separated from what is dear to me. The only thing I truly own are my actions. I am heir to my actions. For good or bad, they define me. bringing awareness to the area in your body where the breath is most apparent. And just holding the very simple reflection, one day this body will breathe no more. One day this body will stop breathing. This very breath could be my last or the one following.
contemplating the very fragility of the body, where one of the many systems of the body that keep us alive, even a slight alteration can lead to a cascading series of events. This human life is a fragile one. Knowing that I live without guarantees, how do I want to be remembered by those that survive me? What is most important? Do I want to be remembered as kind, insightful, dependable, creative, appreciative? Looking back on my life, what has brought me the greatest joy. Remembering those experiences that we treasure today. Looking back on my life, what choices or acts am I most proud of? What choices, what actions create the greatest feeling of uplift, a sense of esteem and worthiness. What actions do you want to be remembered by? What actions do I want to be remembered by? And now to the best that I can, setting an intention to live in accordance with this reflection. Whatever I most feel exemplifies worthiness, what I most want to be remembered by, what brings me the greatest joy and sense of esteem, let that be my guide for future choices. And so, thanking you for your practice. And whenever you're ready, feel invited to uh, return. <laughs> <laughs>